Welcome to Cowan Insights, a space that brings leading thinkers together to share insights and ideas shaping the world around us. Join us as we converse with the top minds who are influencing our global sectors. This is Jason Gableman joined by Mark Bianchi from the Cowan Energy team. On this edition of the Cowan Energy Transition podcast series, we're pleased to be talking with Lee Stockwell. Lee is the general manager of Shell's U.S. carbon capture business. He's been at Shell for 20 years, holding a variety of roles in the upstream business, most recently as a general manager of part of Shell's Gulf of Mexico business. He's been the general manager of Shell's carbon capture business in the U.S. for over a year. Shell, more broadly, has a target of 25 million tons carbon capture by 2035. It currently operates Quest CCS in Canada and is participating in a number of projects, including Northern Lights, Portos, Net Zero Teesside, and Houston CCS Hub. With that, Lee, it's great to have you. Thanks, Jason. Appreciate the opportunity to be here. Before we get into the carbon capture questions, it would be great to hear a little more about your background. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, as you mentioned, I've been with Shell for a couple of decades now uh, and have spent the majority of that time in the upstream business and have done, gosh, most anything under the sun in that side of the business from, from development and exploration, research and development, the drilling and completion of wells, asset operations, the commercial side of, of buying and selling uh, different assets, uh, and, and as well as the safety and environmental space. Um, I ended up in, in this job as a carbon capture and, and sequestration general manager for, for the U.S., um, after several jobs had taken me through a lot of the connection to, um, to our emissions. So I, I was the general manager for safety and environment for our deep water business and wrote the, the strategy for, uh, for that business associated with greenhouse gas at the time and then moved into that asset manager role in the Gulf of Mexico, where I was also the CO2 focal point for our entire operations in the Gulf of Mexico. So had an opportunity to really begin to get my fingers dirty associated with um, what we're doing to take the step towards that net zero ambition that Shell has. And through that said, you know, I, I really would like to own more of this to, to be a, um, a tip of the spear, so to speak, and have the opportunity to come and, and start to build our carbon capture and sequestration business in the U.S., playing off the success in places like Quest in Canada. That's great. Thanks. Uh, can you give us an overview of Shell's current carbon capture footprint in the U.S. and broadly how you see that footprint evolving in the coming years? Sure, Jason. Um, maybe to start to say that in the U.S. we don't have any operations as of yet for carbon capture and sequestration. So we, we are very much building um, a, a new presence for us. That said, we do have a lot of facility footprint here especially in the Gulf Coast. We have multiple facilities in, uh, in Louisiana and, and one remaining in, in Houston area. Uh, and for that, we want to ensure that we're decarbonizing that footprint. We also have a facility in, in Pennsylvania, our polyethylene facility in Pennsylvania. It sits uh, maybe 20 miles north of, of Pittsburgh or so. And our, our first intention, of course, is to decarbonize our own footprint. And so we will have, uh, we will have CCS in those areas now, we also want to take the opportunity within those areas to, to help decarbonize our neighbors and communities. So what we look to do is build what we call hubs, decarbonization hubs, that, that take um, CO2 away from many different industrial players cutting across different sectors. And so the, the big focus for us right now is the Gulf Coast. It is that Pennsylvania tri-state area. 
And we're looking at other opportunities in, in the funnel in different places where we're in conversations with folks in the ethanol business as ethanol is, um, is also a pure source of, of CO2 while also being a key feedstock for the future. Uh, those are the areas that, that we spend more of our time looking at right now. Certainly there'll be others that, that evolve, but places where we can both uh, play in many value chains. So if we give you an, an example in Louisiana, we just recently announced that, that we will be refurbishing our convent location into biofuels. You know, CCS is a good way to, to connect into biofuels through blue hydrogen. I'm sure we'll talk more about a bit later, um, but where we can integrate across multiple chains, not just for ourselves, but, but from our fence line neighbors or, or uh, in industry around us, we'll take the opportunity to do that as well. And those are things that you see in like the Houston CCS um, consortium that, that ourselves and 14 other players are there in the Houston region. That's great. And you touched on a variety of topics that we'll hopefully address throughout the discussion. One of them is, you, you know, you mentioned the importance of having an existing footprint to build your carbon capture business off of. Can you just expand on that point a bit? How important is having that existing footprint um, in order to build a carbon capture business from, and what type of advantages does that existing, existing footprint offer Shell? Well, for, I think for many players, you, you start with, with the volumes of CO2 that, that you need, right? And I think that in order to, to be successful in building a hub, you're going to need some sort of scale. And so building and aggregating the volumes that, that get you to scale is, is, uh, is a key endeavor. When you have your own volumes to bring to that table, uh, it, it most certainly makes that journey a, a bit easier. The, of course, the type of assets that you have also impacts what it is that you're looking at. So as you're very familiar in the US, we have uh, a tax incentive called 45Q that provides $50 a ton for permanent sequestration, $35 a ton for enhanced oil recovery, CO2 um, abatement. And in that regard, you have to think through what, what volumes do you have and the types of volumes. Right now at $50 a ton from a cost perspective, you, you can really only manage the, the purer sources of CO2. And so you need some of those pure sources within your, within your hub to be able to get you from, from uh, ground zero to, to a project that will work. And then over time, as the incentives develop, then you can add in harder to abate sectors. So not only do you need your own asset base, but you need some help with what exists from, uh, from the type of CO2 sources that you're, that you're working with. But being able to get that scale and having the, the, the infrastructure, for us, we have long relationships in places like Louisiana and Pennsylvania. Uh, so to be able to work with the, the local and federal governments in those areas, those are also big, um, big helps in, in moving a project like CCS along. Great. Just maybe one more on the existing footprint. You, are, you mentioned you have a variety of assets in the U.S. and refineries and chemical plants, and these facilities have in, individual units, and I imagine C, CCS is only applicable to certain units. So can you maybe discuss what units are within the wider um, kind of refining and chemical plants that Shell has where it makes sense to deploy C CCS? Well, I'm sure, I mean, you kind of have a whole gamut of, of what it looks like from, uh, as you mentioned, very large, say refineries or, or chemical plants, uh, plastics manufacturing locations. We have uh, a footprint in the Gulf of Mexico with, with many different assets that sit out in the deeper water. We've got terminals uh, all over the United States to, to move things around. Uh, some of those things in terms of what we call point sources or places where emissions come from um, 
are, are very difficult to, to capture because they're maybe very disparate. Uh, they're in different locations or they're small sources and it would cost, um, it would cost a, too much of a, 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 it would cost too much to be able to, to capture all the different point sources. So typically when you're thinking about CCS, you're thinking about very large sources of emissions, hundreds of thousands to millions of tons per year. And, and then you would, you would add, um, you would add technology to that to remove it. Uh, so um, if you're in a position where, at, let's say, I've got an offshore platform, for instance, and I've got a bunch of very small places that, that put emissions through and none of them are very large, in order for me to put an entire carbon capture facility in that place, it would cost a lot per ton of CO2. So my, my unit cost would be very high and, and uneconomic. Um, in places like a, um, like a chemical plant where I've got both pure sources and, and large sources of CO2, I can put a, a capture unit in that location and the cost per ton of CO2 would be significantly smaller. So across the assets, we say, all right, what makes sense now versus what may make sense later, or, or maybe and or, the, what technology needs to develop in order to capture smaller sources of CO2 over time. And those are technologies that are, that are working as we speak. Got it, got it. Uh, what, are, what are the features in the US above ground and below ground, maybe from a policy standpoint that help and, and maybe hinder C CCS deployment? I, mean, the, I would say the, the first and foremost in the U.S. is that you're you've got 45Q, which which provides you a a revenue stream, um, and that revenue stream is is different than say what we see in the model in Europe, where you have here there is no as of yet there is no um, capital grants being given by the government that will change uh, to some degree with the Infrastructure Act uh, that was passed late last year, but to date there has been none, um, and you have this revenue stream on the back end. In Europe, they, they provide the grant, but the return on that investment is capped like a utility. So you have very low margins that come off the back end of that. So here you have much better incentive to, to move a project forward where you can make money. You're not, uh, you, you aren't constrained on, on what your outcomes might be only by whether you can make the economics work underneath the 45Q um, tax incentive. I think that is a, a, big, uh, a big component. The other is that in many of the states that are kind of leading the way in this, you have very clear policy associated with, uh, with CCS. So for instance, Louisiana in 2009 passed the Sequestration Act, which very much details uh, what happens with, with the CO2 in the poor space. You have the EPA um, class six injection laws, which dictate what it takes in order to inject CO2 uh, onshore in the US. Uh, the infrastructure bill just gave the mandate to the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management to define the rules for offshore um, injection. So you have a very progressive policy front here that continues to move things along and will open the doors for C uh, CCS to continue to evolve and move forward. And we see more and more states kind of stepping into that space and saying, let's create that clarity around it. So this industry is one that, that connects to uh, more and more places. I think that's a very a great benefit for us. I think there are other sides like Canada, for instance, which has um, more of a carbon pricing associated with it. You see them moving because at a certain rate because there's a bit of a carrot and stick that gets played on that front. The U.S. doesn't have that yet, so it may happen to some uh, at some point in time. And if it does, that will accelerate this journey to some degree. But you do see varying policies in different places. I would say. I mean, the U.S.'s policy is, is very mature relative to a lot of the, the planet. 
um, and one that is much more favorable than say uh, the European side. So while Europe has, has looked at these mega projects and the barriers to entry are very high because of the, the regulations in the US, there are all, almost no barriers to entry in the, in the onshore world for CCS. If, if you have the expertise and you have the, the funding, you can move forward. Maybe um, this is Mark, just to follow up on that, as you think about the expertise and, um, and how that, maybe how the different functions exist for participants in the US market. Um, so Air Products, for example, who we had on another podcast, had um, acquired some, uh, some poor space in Louisiana, and they're pursuing this project on, on their own. They're pursuing a blue hydrogen project on their own. But they don't have history doing, you know, subsurface stuff. Um, I assume they're going to employ some some oil field service company. But maybe talk about, you know, what Shell's expertise brings to the table um, in the U.S. Where are you going to be involved in actually owning assets versus where are you going to have third parties? I'm thinking about perhaps you might not have a pipeline. Somebody else is going to do a pipeline. So, like, how far does your scope extend, and and how important of a competitive advantage is that? Well, I think one of Shell's benefits um, is the fact that it's a fully integrated company. So, so from the beginning to the end, we can choose which value chains we want to play in. So, you know, from everything from the capture technology, which we have proprietary capture technology, um, all the way through to to the underground storage and monitoring, which you know, as as a company that's got a large upstream presence, is bread and butter. You know, we, we can choose which one of those businesses we want to play in, uh, depending on where we are on the globe, what the regime is, where our where our strengths are, maybe specific to the region. Uh, and I would tell you that that you know, I look at Air Products and the and the announcement they make, which is great for Louisiana. Um, good to see them moving in in a space like that. Um, but I agree with you. You know, there, there are a lot of companies that provide subsurface expertise, and there's there are a lot of companies that can provide the drilling expertise if you need them. Uh, there are companies that can provide capture if you need them. So you know, any anybody who comes in can has the opportunity to say, well, we will we'll subcontract these different parts out and pull together a project. I think that the the ones with the more of integrated uh, view will, will have a better chance of of, um, of pulling together a project that maybe is a bit more advantaged from an economics perspective. Uh, but I would say that that there the expertise is available in, within the market. I will say that that we intend to be a, a part of all value chains, certainly in the Gulf Coast and in, and in uh, the Pennsylvania tri-state area. You know, we we would like to be a, a you know everything from the capture side all the way through to the storage. That will be a place that that we look to play. In in addition, you'll see us uh, in the blue hydrogen space as well, uh, because they're they're kind of naturally linked between CCS uh, and, and blue hydrogen. You'll see us exist in in that. Um, in that value chain uh, too. And I think that the expertise that we bring there from a proprietary technology and our partial oxidation, I think it will be an advantage as well. So I, I do think that this suits us. We have experience in permanent sequestration that for all intents and purposes, very few others have. That, that Quest project, most of the, if you think about the amount of tons per year that is sequestered currently uh, around the planet, the vast majority of that's for enhanced oil recovery uh, as opposed to permanent uh, sequestration. So. Having that experience, understanding what it takes, uh, I think gives us a, a bit of an advantage in that. Certainly, when we have conversations with with uh, potential partners or or governments, being able to sit down and say, "Look, this is actually what it takes," and let, let's talk about the risks and liabilities and um, the benefits of doing something like this, we can paint that picture 
uh, and show that what it takes to make it happen. Well, so, you know, we're, we're not technical people, we're financial people. Maybe explain a little bit of the difference between enhanced oil recovery and sequestration. Like what, I, I didn't realize there was much of a technical difference, but um, it sounds like there is, maybe you could expand on that. Yeah, so if, maybe at the, the top side uh, component of this, the, what's on the surface, the, the capture components are roughly the same. Let, let's just leave it at that. Let's say we capture some CO2. And from that point forward, what you do with the CO2 is, uh, is different between permanent sequestration um, and, and enhanced oil recovery. So in enhanced oil recovery, we would take that CO2, we would bring it to a place where there's existing oil production, uh, and you would pump that CO2 into the ground for the purposes of moving oil uh, and sweeping oil from say one side of a reservoir to another towards the producing wells. And the intent there is to increase the amount of recovery from a, a, a normal formation where let's say, just if I just pick numbers that if you started with, you may have a 20% recovery and after injecting it with CO2 that 20% that may turn into 30 or 40%. And so there's value associated with injecting that CO2. What ends up happening there is as you inject CO2 over time, eventually that CO2 travels from where you've injected it to where it's produced and you start producing CO2. And then it becomes a bit of a treadmill right, where I continue to produce then, then capture CO2, then inject the CO2 again uh, over and over again, right? Um, and because it's that, it's not permanent sequestration, uh, but it is, it is something that, that you inject CO2 for. And the reason that, that you continue to do that is, is for continued recovery. And eventually, over the after the oil field has lost its productive life, you would inject as much CO2 as you could hold and, and move that towards permanent sequestration, or at least that is, that's the theory of, of how that would work. I'm not sure how many fields have, have been stopped and then used afterwards for CO2 injection. Um, permanent sequestration would be saying, I'm going to look at this with a saline aquifer, so an aquifer that we don't pull drinking water from, and that would be much deeper than our drinking water levels. And I would pump CO2 into that level um, without producing. And the, the difference between, of course, is I'm, if I'm producing from an oil field, I'm relieving the pressure and then I can put CO2 in, which would uh, stabilize that pressure over time. Uh, underground in an aquifer, I'm going to increase the pressure, but I'm going to do it very slowly and only to a certain point that, that it's contained within the, the rock itself. We would want to stay below the strength of the rock so we don't, we don't break or fracture the rock in any way, shape, or form. So with that, I, there's a limited amount of CO2 that I can stick in a reservoir, and I have to monitor that very closely to ensure that I stay within those reservoir parameters. So that the, the requirements for that permanent sequestration are somewhat more than the requirements for enhanced oil recovery. Um, and, and for that, we want to make certain that we've got all the right things in place. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, that, that's great. Maybe just real quick, um, before I give back over to Jason. So just in terms of service companies, um, only one of them has said that they have worked in class six before and have a, a demonstrated class six capability. How, um, how real of a, a barrier is that? Or how, how hard is it for other companies to kind of get class six certification and, and be providing services for, for such activities? Well, it, it should be recognized that, that to date, there, there's only been a couple of wells that have been approved for class six. So just for, for reference, um, the underwater injection uh, certification uh, UIC program that, that the EPA manages um, has a classifications that, that look at a lot of different things, 
Um, if you were injecting water, for instance, it would be class two. So CO2 is, is class six. Um, and, and what's required for, for any well that may inject CO2 is a class six permit. As I mentioned, so there's only two have been given out to date. That, those were both in Illinois, uh, given to, uh, to Archer Daniel Midland for, for their project. Those permits took, I think, four years uh, in order to turn them over from, from beginning to end. Uh, so, so clearly a process that, that um, is new and hasn't been used very much. And you can see if there's only two that's been, that have been, uh, been handed out to date, not many companies have a lot of experience with, with what it takes to, to gather those class six. So we're all kind of in that same boat in the U.S. Now, I, what's happening now is that, um, is that many permits are, are being applied for. So you've got lots of applications that are now sitting in the queues in different states. Uh, within the states, you either have the, the state that's asked for primacy over that class six permitting process from EPA or the regional EPA office. Um, it, it will be managing that, that process itself. And what ends up happening in that is that you, you get all the data that you require from a well, you, you submit the permit that you want for your uh, injection well, and then there's a, a bit of a process back and forth to understand what the application actually means, what are the implications of it, you know, what are, you know, they, they test the science of it, what are the environmental issues associated with the area, uh, with those wells, and they, they work through that process to, to understand that permit, hopefully in a time now shorter than four years, uh, depending on where you're, Louisiana, for instance, has asked for primacy, it has an expectation to get primacy sometime in Q2 of this year, uh, they, they say their expectation is one to two years uh, to, in order to turn around a, pro, uh, a permit. It'll be different depending on where you are uh, and, and who's managing that permit. But in that regard, all of us are going to be trying to gather that experience as we move forward. Um, it, it, is, it won't be just the, the, um, the service companies. Great. If we could zoom back out to a, to a maybe higher level. Uh, there seems to be different business models forming around C CCS. There's CCS as a ser service. There's doing it within your own footprint. And, and maybe that is in part based on different infrastructure that companies have access to. It, it would be helpful to maybe get a sense of the different business models for CCS that are available to Shell and, and, and maybe to the broader market. Sure. Um, if, if we think about maybe at the highest level, the potential revenue streams associated with with what um, with what CCS is, that your first is around the, the government incentives. So your 45 Qs um, or anything else that that may exist in that space. Um, that that's kind of number one. The the second is uh, value from other value streams. So for instance, um, low carbon fuel standard in California, if, if I were to remove CO2 off of ethanol and that ethanol was sent to California for use, uh, then it would qualify for a low, um, a low carbon fuel standard credit, which is a couple of hundred dollars a ton. That's another swath of value thanks to that, that extent. And the last one's a, a bit of the markets. Um, and so the, the ability to, to create cleaner products or, or lower carbon products through CCS um, for instance, if we, if we took CO2 off of steel and say, all right, it's low carbon steel, the demand for, for that product um, and the premium that might be associated with that demand is another potential revenue stream. There's those markets in terms of the, the low carbon products and the premiums, but those are things that are fledgling as of right now. There, there's not a big scope 
for, for what that is, but it is something that we do see more and more demand of in, in it, within our own businesses for chemicals and products. Uh, more and more of our customers are coming to us and saying, we, we, would, like, uh, we would like low carbon feedstock for whatever our process might be. Um, and there's some you know, major companies that I think all of us uh, would recognize on the store shelves asking for that movement to occur. So while we see it's a bit fledgling now, we do expect it to move forward. I think the other part of that will be the societal demand. So, you know, my mental model of what things will look like in the future is similar to the calorie uh, counter and ingredients on the, on the side of your cereal box. Each one of the products that you'll have in the future will have some sort of uh, energy calorie counter and right? how much energy has gone into this product. You know, what is the carbon intensity of the shirt you bought or the car you bought or the TV you have? Um, and it'll become something where people are going to start uh, looking for lower amounts of energy used in order to make the products that, um, that get bought. And in that regard, you're going to look at things that are lower carbon in general, and CCS will be a, a facilitator for that. So you have those different views of what the revenue streams are. Uh, in the 45Q space, as I mentioned before, you know, right now, what's, what is uh, in the money is are purer sources of CO2. And there are many of those that come from different industries. Um, and that's where the, the business is centered right now. How do I make sure that I'm set up there? Your, your next swath will be uh, either a reduction in cost of what it takes to get uh, capture put in place or an increase in the incentive set uh, that will unlock what we call harder to abate sectors or, or things that are kind of a higher dollar per carbon ton to, to abate. Uh, and that will be an, uh, that will be an addition as low carbon fuel standard expands and, and other standards get put in place. Uh, you'll see the expansion again from from that perspective and, and more uh, fall within that that in the money funnel. Uh, and then the premium side or, or as we move to, say, what we consider um, something that, that probably needs to happen where you have governments calling for lower carbon um, feedstocks into their capital projects things like lower carbon steel or low carbon cement, you know, those sorts of, of um, backed contracts will open up a whole nother swath. And you'll see kind of with each one of those, a stair step change in terms of how much CCS is being used and deployed based on the different expansions into business models. Shell works with a lot of its customers to help them decarbonize. And you mentioned uh, lower carbon products as an avenue or as a business case for C CCS. but how does Shell get comfortable that the demand is going to be there for that product, for the C CCS? Are you speaking to customers and developing um, projects on a one-off basis, or are you saying, we think the broader market is X, so we know the project is going to be supported, or is it something else uh, going on? I think maybe a couple of a, a couple of things come into mind when you say that, that, that you know, for us getting comfortable demand, as I mentioned before, it's always easy to get comfortable when you have your own volumes. So when when you're when you've got your own emissions and you know you're going to be doing that work, it's it, it's this is more around what the incremental might be for expanding into a position where we can help other people. Um, I, I will say that the conversations that we have with uh, with different customers across a lot of different sectors are very similar in the sense that most people are trying to find their way and say what does an energy transition look like for us in this industry. And that's something that Shell kind of end to end can say, all right, well, this is what we see, or these are things that we can help with uh, in, in different parts. CCS may be one of many different solutions that get offered in that space. Um, but many, I think it, it is a, 
uh, it's a pretty well shared belief that the direction of travel is the same, at least to the folks that we're having the, the conversations with. And in that, you know, customers come to us of their own volition and saying, we know we need to change, or we know our supply chain needs to change. You know, how can you help us? What does it look like? We want to do this by this period of time. You know, what does that take? Um, many of them come to us and say, well, how do we, how do we lean into a, uh, into a, a federal or a state regulatory environment with you? Or, or, you know, how do we show up in this position to say, we, we recognize this needs to happen. Here's what it takes to make that happen. So I, I worry less about the demand, um, Jason, right now, just given that if you look at the, the IEA reports or the BNEF reports or you know, pick, pick your major accredited, um, uh, accredited agency that looks through this, CCS is going to play somewhere between a 15 and 20% role in, in removing uh, or, or attacking our, our net zero ambition as a planet. Um, if that's the case, we've got to grow by 150 times between where we are now and, and, and what that might actually look like over time. Um, the, the question will be how quickly can we get the regimes in place that will enable that to move and will bring the demand forward in time. And otherwise, you're going to take a, a small incremental approach to demand increase until you get to the position of, of having those markets start to start to um, develop. We could touch on costs for a couple of minutes. Uh, maybe broadly just uh, frame the discussion, the split in CCS costs between uh, the capture, the transport and the storage. And where do you see those costs moving over time? Where's the area within those three buckets where um, there's scope for the most cost reduction improvement? Um, maybe, to, maybe to start with the, the last question first. Um, you know, we've, we have been doing midstream pipeline transport and underground development for a long time. Um, this, this is something that, that we're very good at. We understand that what it takes to, to go from point A to point B as you start to increase the projects um, and the amount of work that gets done there, you know, that learning curve will take place very quickly, and, but it'll be, um, it'll be finite. The, the amount of uh, improvement that you'll see on those spaces uh, will only go down so much. And I, I don't want to throw a number out there, but you know, relative to, to maybe the capture component, you'll, you'll only see so much movement on the, on the transport and the, uh, and the subsurface elements of it. The, the capture is one where it's a bit of a big unknown because the, the capture itself, uh, technology has been around for 40 years, right? The, there, well, let me say that in a different way. Uh, absorption technology has, has been around for 40 years. Uh, there are four different types of technology, just, just for reference, absorption, which is a bit like getting water into a sponge, adsorption, which is sticking to the surface of something, so it'd be like fly paper, um, membranes, which would be your, your coffee filter, um, and then the, the last one's cryogenic, so or, or freezing it. The most cost-effective and the widely most deployed is, is absorption, but technology could change on all the other fronts and, and something could occur in that space where it is um, it becomes much more cost effective. And I know people are working on those technologies all the time. Um, but I, 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 you know, that's kind of the big, the big black box as, to, as technology changes, um, which we, we certain, we cert, we're certain it will, we just don't necessarily know when and what scale, but as you get to those step changes, it, it most certainly would have the most opportunity come down. There's a technology called direct air capture. And typically for capture costs, the, the cost goes up 
as the concentration of CO2 goes down. They're, they're in, inversely proportionate. Direct air capture looks to take it out of the atmosphere where, where you're looking at very low, less than 1% type of, of uh, concentrations of CO2 and its costs are in the five to $600 a ton range. So, so very expensive. And then you move into what we call post-combustion. So after, after a, a fuel is combusted, you, you, you take that emissions, they go up a, a stack, a flue stack, for instance. Uh, if, if we were to capture that, um, you're looking at concentrations that are, let's say, sub 20% CO2. You know, and that could be anywhere from 80 to $120 a ton in terms of capture. Uh, and then you move to, say, pure sources of, of, uh, of CO2, say 90 plus percent. Uh, and if you're looking at pure sources, it could be you know, less than $30 a ton to capture, right? So each one of those changes, depending what the purity is, the, the, the smaller end of that scale, the more pure sources, that cost to capture, there's not a lot of room for movement in that. But in the higher end of that scale, there's a significant amount of room. You know, the view is that direct air capture over time will move from five or $600 a ton to 100 to $200 a ton. So you'll see significant uh, swings. Uh, for some of those technology pieces. Those are the ones that we're really interested in, in watching. Um, the, the cost relative, say, let's say you have 80 to $120 a ton and your capture, your transport could be three to $7 a ton. Uh, and then your, your subsurface could be another you know, five to, to $10 a ton, depending on how many wells you have to put, where it is, those sorts of things. And then those are kind of numbers that come out of the, the Natural Petroleum Council study. Uh, that was done or the work that's been done by the Global CCSI Institute, They'll, they show you the ranges for each one of those. And I think that's what we expect to see and, and move over time. That's great. Uh, maybe we could talk a bit about blue hydrogen for a couple of minutes. Can you maybe just first discuss Shell's efforts in uh, that area, particularly in the US? Right, similar to CCS, it's a, build, a business we're building, right? And, and one that um, folks like Air Products has, has, have done a, uh, a lot of work to, um, to, to place their flags and move forward. Uh, what we see uh, in terms of hydrogen is a key enabler uh, that, that enables uh, a lot of different opportunities to, to further decarbonize. So if you think about those, those potential solutions, you have CCS, which is one aspect, but you have the hydrogen business, which is another. And in the US, especially in the Gulf Coast, uh, where natural gas is cheap, um, maybe, maybe not as cheap as it was a, a few months ago, um, but where natural gas is cheap, you're, you're going to see blue hydrogen, I think, play a role there uh, prior to, to green hydrogen coming into, uh, coming into the, the view. And I think Shell has, a, I mentioned, our own, our own technology that captures 99% uh, of the CO2 associated with it. Um, it, is, it is partial oxidation. So if you're if you're familiar, the, the primary three uh, blue hydrogen technologies are uh, capturing CCS off of an SMR, uh, a technology called ATR and technology called POX, uh, or partial oxidation. The, the latter two are, are, um, are oxygen-based systems. Uh, and so you, you end up in a very different environment than your SMR, both of which are, are cleaner, although both of which are more expensive as well. <clears throat> Shell's technology is that partial oxidation technology and because of the, the quality of that technology is something that we think um, many people will want. It's been deployed in many places. Uh, what we would like to be able to do in the U.S. is take advantage of the footprint that we have and the projects that we are developing um, to, to put some blue hydrogen in place. Uh, I think as of yet, we're still working on what scale that might want to be at uh, and, and what regions we would want, but certainly the Gulf Coast, certainly that 
area in the tri-state, um, Pennsylvania area I mentioned before, are areas that we're very interested in. Are we talking about greenfield projects for blue hydrogen, or are you going to be retrofitting, either adding capture equipment or taking out an SMR, replacing it with POX? And, and I'm curious on that latter point, you know, how do you decide, is it put capture on an SMR where maybe you're capturing 50% or you go replace the SMR and have a lower cost of capture, but maybe more upfront capital? Um, the answers we'll consider both, Mark, to, to answer the first question first. We'll, we'll, we'll look at both brownfield and greenfield opportunities. And then how you would determine between the two would really, what, what is, what's required? So different, different levels of, of blue uh, or different levels of low carbon product require different things, depending on which way the, the market goes. So if I have a product, let's say biofuels, that needs to go to California, um, then it needs to be a certain standard of blue. And within that, you need to make certain that whatever the technique for capture is, either on existing technology or, or for the pox, it, it needs to meet that hurdle. Uh, and so you'll start with whatever works for that, that particular value chain that you're looking at. Um, and, and if it is that I, I need a higher cost or, or it makes more sense from a value point of view to put a new partial oxidation unit, a greenfield unit out, or to capture CO2 off of an existing SMR, you know, that you, you'll aim to look at which one of those suits your purpose. That, that's interesting about the, um, about the decision for, for brownfield um, and greenfield and, and um, pox versus SMR. But one of the kind of challenges or, or maybe criticisms that we've heard for, um, for blue hydrogen in general is that um, certainly when compared to green, um, there's concerns that you're not capturing all of the fugitive methane that's in the whole supply chain, right? So upstream natural gas production, midstream delivery, gas processing, um, there's a bunch of fugitive methane that goes along with that. And when you throw all that in, um, you know, what might seem like a 95% capture of CO2 on a GHG basis is, you know, much less attractive. What, what does Shell have to say about that? What do you do um, in your sort of upstream operations to ensure the molecule is, is kind of low GHG versus CO2? Yeah, some interesting points you, you touch on there. Um, maybe the first that, that comes to mind is, is it kind of depends on what you're comparing. If we're comparing standard production of hydrogen versus the production of blue hydrogen, um, then, then the supply chain for natural gas is the same in either case. Um, and so the, the idea of being able to capture the CO2 off of the hydrogen production would result in a, a significant decrease in a net, uh, a net uh, GHG basis. Um, I, I do, and Shell does, call for, for you know, methane reform. We, we want stricter regulations in place for, for methane emissions. And we do a lot inside of Shell to ensure that our operations don't. So uh, everything from making certain that the, the wells that we produce have the appropriate casing and, and don't have venting associated with those wells um, to, to running our, our, all of our operations, all of the, the production side of it with LIDAR, uh, which essentially helps us see whether there's potential, any sort of potential gas, gas leaks associated with methane. Um, it is something that we spend a lot of time and effort ensuring that that our our process um, uh, doesn't have leaks and that we remediate any that we find as small as they small as they are whenever they they come up. We uh, our motto inside of Shell is find find small, fix small, 
so that, that we don't end up with a, something that's larger than that. Um, so our, our belief is that you should very much take care of the methane within the supply chain um, so that that is a, a stable process. Um, and I, I do think that that's something that our industry you know, needs to continue to, to evolve and adopt standards as maybe as, as strict as ours um, in, in, in the total supply chain piece. But if I think about the, the, just the hydrogen per perspective, the, the idea of saying that, that um, capturing CO2 on something that wasn't particularly captured or wasn't specifically capturing CO2 before um, could, could result in a net increase in emissions doesn't, um, it, from a math point of view, doesn't make a lot of sense. And I know that it's quite, you'll, you'll, uh, you'll probably spend some time talking about Quest with one of my colleagues. Um, but if you think about where the Quest article came out, that there was some, some negative publicity that said that Quest, the Quest project emitted more than it, it captured. Oh, that, that's just blatantly untrue. Um, the, the Quest project was never intended to be a 100% a emissions. It was something that DOE, in fact, invested on a pilot project that we would say, let's, let's try to capture 50% and show that the capture plus uh, the storage would work and it's actually done very well. It's captured a, roughly a million tons per year since it was, since it started. Um, and, and that in a net is, is significantly less than, than it, it emitted beforehand. For sure. Great, great. Unfortunately, I think we're gonna have to leave it there. I know we have a lot more questions, but that's all the time that we have. So Lee, on behalf of Mark and myself, really appreciate you taking the time to talk about uh, Shell, Shell's carbon capture business. Thanks yeah. a lot. Yeah, no, thank you for having me. It's, it's been a pleasure. Yeah, really appreciate Thanks. it, Lee. Thanks so much. Thanks for joining us. Stay tuned for the next episode of Cowan Insights.